0: This episode is sponsored by Brooklyn Candle, female-owned and founded by Tamra Main in 2013. Brooklyn Candle offers luxury home fragrance products at an accessible price point. Everything is handmade in Brooklyn, and the fragrances were all inspired by travel and nature moments and memories. Now they're also doing things responsibly. All of the candles are 100% soy wax, plant-based, and renewable. All products are free from phthalates, parabens, sulfates, petroleum, and dyes, and the beautiful vessels, the jars that they come in, can be reused and repurposed. They also limit plastic in production and have none in shipping, so everything is clean and, like I said, they're doing things responsibly. My biggest thing, of course all of these things are important, is that when I walk into my room and the Santel diffuser hits me, I immediately feel more at peace and more at calm. Um, there's, there's just something about scent, especially that takes us to a different vibration, a different place. Um, so if you want to experience Brooklyn candle, head on over to brooklyncandlestudio.com and be sure to use my code motherhood20 to save. You're listening to the Motherhood Unstressed podcast, and I'm your host, Liz Carlisle. I am so excited to bring this episode to you. It is a special episode ahead of the restart of the CERN-Hadron Collider on Tuesday, July 5th. So I reached out to CERN wanting to speak with an expert on the experiments that are going to be happening and they provided. So today I am speaking with Dr. Sarah de Merge. She's a physicist based at CERN working on the Atlas experiments that will start collecting data from the Large Hadron Collider on July 5th. In addition to working on Atlas, Dr. de Mers is a professor at Yale and has collaborated with the Yale Theater Department to explore connections between physics and dance. Now in this episode, we're talking all about the mission of CERN, testing theories, and how exploring physics at a subatomic scale can help us better understand and better appreciate our place in the universe. So I hope you enjoy this episode. It is very timely, so I hope you're listening to this before July 5th. If not, that's okay. You're still going to learn a lot about CERN and the mission behind the work um, and the thousands of people that are coming together to work on this to, to really better understand how our universe works. Um, So I hope you enjoy this episode with Dr. Sarah Damers. Dr. Sarah Damers, welcome to the show. I'm so glad that you're here.
1: Thanks. I'm really happy to be here.
0: Yeah. There's so much that I want to get into with you. We only have a short amount of time, but before we get into all of that, I would love to know the events, the pivotal events in your life that led you to doing the work that you're doing now with Yale and CERN.
1: I think when I, I can look back at high school at my very first physics class, um I had always thought about myself as a humanities person, but when I took physics, it was so shocking and uh challenging and unexpected. I really was intrigued by it. And one of my teachers, I went to a very small school, um, and my at the time my Math teacher was my English teacher, and he said to me, Have you ever considered being a research scientist? And I think that was really what got me thinking as of this as a possibility. Um and when I went to, to school as an undergraduate, I had a work study position. I started out working in the library. But my sophomore year got a position working with a physicist doing research. And I admit I expected to really hate it. I didn't know what research was. It sounded probably awful and boring and lonely and sterile. Um, But I tried it and absolutely fell in love with it. So I guess I haven't looked back since that first research experience which was in particle physics. I was working on a detector. Um, so yeah, I jumped right in.
0: Yeah, yeah. And that's really, that leads us perfectly into what you're doing now, working with the Atlas Project for CERN. I think a lot of people don't realize that there's different projects all coming together for the same mission, but you need those, those separate um, projects to measure and to really back up what everyone else is finding. So can you talk a little bit about what Atlas what its mission is specifically, and what it's looking for, especially ahead of the, the restarting of the accelerator on Tuesday.
1: Absolutely. So ATLAS is one of the general purpose experiments at CERN. There are two of them. That means we have a very broad physics program. Over a 1,000 papers have been published so mm. far on ATLAS data. So we are looking to better understand what we have already measured um, the particles that we understand around us. We're trying to really get a better handle on the Higgs boson particle, which we discovered in 2012. It's still uh, mysterious enough so that it requires a lot more study. And we are also looking for a host of other possible things out there that we haven't had the energy or the data to see yet. And that's what's most exciting about this upcoming run, is that we're going to have our um, our hands on a higher Energy, uh, more energy to work with, which means that it's it's like you're climbing up to a taller mountain and you can see further. There, there is just more area that we can explore. So it's a really broad research program.
0: Yeah, yeah, and it seems like you know the it's been shut down for three years to do upgrades and things like that. What is the reason that there is that that rest period? Is it to to get I don't know, just explain it to us for the people who don't really know, who don't have the physics background.
1: Sure. So it's probably worth saying that the Atlas detector is six stories high. It's the length of a football field. It weighs as much as the Eiffel Tower, and it has hundreds of millions of electronic channels. So there are Over 3,000 of us who are working on this detector and just keeping it going, keeping it running takes a huge amount of effort. Um, After a period of running, the radiation levels are pretty high. We have lots of particles that are created. And so some of the electronics get damaged. And so we have to replace things just as part of the normal life cycle. But then we also have uh, this example where the Large Hadron Collider itself, the accelerator that provides these protons to us, becomes more powerful. And so ATLAS has to up its game. We have to react. We know we have higher energy coming, more intense beams coming. We have to make improvements. The detector is 100 meters underground and taking it apart, this massive machine, making sure all of the cables are done properly, all of the wiring works Implementing new technologies, testing new ideas um, it's this does not sound glamorous, but it 's a serious logistics problem. Our spreadsheets are uh, magnificent, you know, just to get this this project up and running again and cope with the data and have access to the physics we want to explore
0: yeah was there a point where AI and big data kind of hit an inflection point where you could? research and understand all of the massive amounts of data that is now being you know is now coming through or will come through I mean I feel like AI kind of was going like this and then all of a sudden it was like that was there like a a specific year where finally you were like okay now we can organize this and understand all this stuff that's coming through
1: I think it's been a partnership it's it's been a It's a transition that started a long time ago. We needed as early as 2001 to use some pretty sophisticated machine learning techniques to untangle some signals. Um, You could say that we're both driven by desperation. We have no choice if we want to extract as much out of our data as we can. But also, I find that the students I work with now are so excited about machine learning and, and this ability to extract more from the data, the creative aspect that it comes, uh, it comes with so it, you know we 're being pushed in that direction by our requirements we 're being pulled in that direction by the um, intellectual curiosity surrounding it um and i can't point to a year but i just was reading a list of thesis projects that have come out in the last month on atlas and 3 of the 5 had machine learning right in their titles yeah. so it, it's everywhere now and it's definitely yeah a, a lot of excitement around it for sure
0: yeah what do you think it is that that gets 4000 plus people from all over the world to come together to work on a massive undertaking like this to to mess with the wires and the data and the research and to write these papers like all different aspects coming together for one purpose what do you think it is that draws the attention that draws the love from so many people
1: it's remarkable that it happens i i thank you for asking the question i i think it's worth acknowledging because we're not a business and we don't pay each other it's amazing that people with such strong personalities (laughs) Can, can accomplish this feat that's so collective. Um, I think that we're doing something that's so basic uh, as humans trying to understand the universe. We're asking really fundamental questions about what are the particles around us? How do they interact with each other? Um, you feel like you're part of an inquiry that's been going on since humans have started looking up at the sky and wondering how things work and what's out there. So I think the questions have uh, have that drive to them that that feel there's a purity to it um, or an excitement to it, and then to be a particle physicist you have to be willing to in these big collaborations be one of thousands. Our names are in alphabetical order in our papers. Um, so there has to be at least some ego um, compressing, right, to, to be part of this. And for me, something that keeps me going is to not let down my colleagues. We mm-hmm. all have to do our jobs very well. And um, my colleagues are my friends, we're working together on, on uh, something that really feels like a mission. It's an incredible challenge. It's exciting. We don't know what we're going to find um, and, the, you know, just one last thing, because I could go on about this forever, but I also love the fact that it's relatively flat in that I have colleagues who are 18 and just starting as undergraduates, and I have colleagues who are past retirement age but can't pull themselves away um, in their 80s, you know, so that's also wonderful to be part of that community where the exchange of knowledge and, um, and, and work together has to happen. Of course, we have challenges and frictions and um, arguments. Um, but at the end of the day, we all want to discover the physics that's out there for us to find. And so we find our way to compromises to, to make things work.
0: Yeah. And what are the implications of finding, you know, antimatter or dark matter, things that we theorize exist, but we've never actually measured? When that starts coming through, when the data starts saying, yes, this is a real thing what does that mean for for the rest of us in the world and and where we're going in the future? That's another
1: good question. I think um, antimatter is something that we're we're coming to better terms with in in a number of experiments. Um, We actually produce a lot of it at CERN. You bring up dark matter, right? There are some really big mysteries out there. Um, I think, again, you can look at this in a number of ways. It means if we take a step forward that we better understand our universe. And that's something, that's the main goal, right? Then we can ask the next set of questions. Um, We also have seen as we push forward in this work, because of the complexity, the amount of data, the rate of the data coming in, the kinds of technologies that we need for our detectors... As we move forward, we push other technologies forward. So we would call that technology transfer. I think there have been a lot of benefits in the field of uh, diagnosing and treatment in medicine. When you make progress in particle physics, some of that transfers out, right? But it's hard to know, when the electron was discovered, that was not at all a practical discovery. That was a magical, what what is this mystery, let's try to uncover it, discovery. It's impossible, I think, for us to predict how what we learn will show up around us in the world in 100 years. Um, So the, the basic question is, you know, moving forward, there's a director of the National Science Foundation who said, we have to always be pushing out on the frontiers of knowledge in all directions, or we'll never be able to solve tomorrow's problems, because we don't know what those problems will be. I also find that very inspiring.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, is that what drives you in your work each and every day? I mean, with anyone with a job, a career, you know, it gets tiring sometimes. And you don't know if you want to get out of bed. But what is it that gets you motivated and passionate? I mean, just t- talking with you, I can see how much passion you have about this. What is it about this world, this unknown, that keeps you going?
1: I think I just, um, I wake up sometimes when I'm based at Yale, in particular at, you know, 3.30 in the morning to join a meeting. Um, but even in those in- instances, I feel really grateful that I have this opportunity. I know that it's, uh, it, it. yeah, I just feel really grateful that I can be part of this group, part of this team. Um, I'm very lucky this year to actually be able to make a, an important contribution with getting ready for this next run. And that really feels like a gift. And so I guess it's it's part gratitude. There's a good deal of fear. I really don't want to mess this up. Mm. <laughs> uh, you know, there's that happening. Um, and then my other main driver is probably my students. I have mm. students and postdocs who I am working very closely with. And that is just a thrill to watch them grow and develop, and to have a responsibility to them, um, but also just the joy of working with them and you know making breakthroughs together. Um, because you're right, many days are um, writing emails or copying spreadsheets. You know, I spent a couple years of my career once hanging weights from springs and measuring <laughs> how long. You know, you just find yourself doing ridiculous things <laughs> to get these big machines to work early in my career but still that um yeah i i I definitely have reasons to keep going
0: this episode is sponsored by kindred bravely kindred bravely came to life in 2015 by deanne akerson a mom of two when she couldn't find any comfortable and functional pajamas while nursing her second son so she decided to design her own line As moms, we have to stick together, which is where Kindred comes from, and Bravely, while we all know being a mom can be tough, it is not for the faint of heart. It takes courage and bravery to be a mom. And at Kindred Bravely, they are devoted to making life easier for pregnant and nursing moms from breast pads and non-skid socks to nursing bras and pajamas. And I might not be pregnant or nursing, but I can advocate completely for how comfortable their clothing is. I wear the uh, cardigan almost every single day, certainly around the house. And I gifted my sister some leggings. Um, She is pregnant with her third child, and she is absolutely over the moon for them. She wants me to get her some more. So you can get your own and save while you do by using my code unstressed. 20 to save 20% off your purchase at kindredbravely.com. Yeah. Can you talk about um, your particular contribution to Atlas for this front three? Sure. My
1: official title probably is
0: uh, not very transparent. I'm the
1: data preparation coordinator for Atlas. What that means is it's the steps between grabbing the data and saying, okay, this is an interesting uh, collision that we want to study And then getting it to the point where people can actually do a physics analysis on it and ask questions like did we find you know is this potential dark matter is this the higgs boson all of that so it includes the glamorous tasks of keeping track of the detector conditions as a function of time what were the magnetic field strengths what were the voltages these databases we organize It includes the visualization of the events. We have really beautiful event displays, colorful, large. They show you the interaction of particles traveling through the detector. Um, It includes measuring how much data we've taken. You would think we would know how much data did we take in the last week. It's a non-trivial thing for us to actually determine with high precision. It's a number of those kinds of tasks that have to happen so that we can actually use the data that we take and extract the most physics out of it.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, and from that, how long does it typically take once you've got this massive amount of data, even with the help of AI that kind of categorizes it for you and organizes it for you, how long does it then take before you're doing presentations?
1: It's an iterative process. So we have a goal on on the 5th of July um, at 4 p.m. local time. Um, so that's in Switzerland. Um, very soon after that, we expect to have data that we take. We have, I have a team that I'm working with that will try to find events within Uh, minutes to hours that we can start showing and displaying to people. But then, so it's everything from, okay, at the beginning, at the startup, we are so intensely going to be looking at the data to make sure that the detectors are functioning well, that anything that's broken, we can fix quickly because the data is very precious. Um, We don't want to lose any of it. Um, And then some analyses we're still working on. my, My group is still working on analysis from 2015 data, Um, So it can take years and years and years to get the final uh, precise measurements you want. So it depends on what questions you're trying to answer. Um, and, And often you have to spin back and try again, get a little bit more data, try again, develop a new technique, like you said, maybe we'll have an idea in a couple of years that will revolutionize the way we can analyze the data. We make sure that we have the tools to go back and run those kinds of analyses
0: Yeah, that's got to be so exciting. I mean, this is coming up. That's why I had to have you on the show today. It was kind of a last minute thing, but I'm just so grateful that you were able to appear because we are really on the cusp of something that humans have never done before. I mean, this is run three. Can you talk a little bit about how this run in particular is different, more expansive than it's ever been in the previous two runs?
1: Yeah. So I'm going to pull an equation in with, um, I guess, without apologies. I think it's a pretty well-known one. Um, E equals MC squared. This, uh, This relationship that Einstein is famous for, for saying, if you have a certain amount of energy that you hand to nature, that energy can actually be used in the form of making massive particles. And the more energy you have, the more mass you have that you can play with. So the big the big step that we're making with this run 3 is really um up in the energy that we're providing. Um we're getting the protons that we're smashing together to go even closer to the speed of light. tremendous amount of energy when they collide. So that's one Really, that's one important difference. That means that the data that we took before, maybe uh, we didn't have access to some processes because we just weren't there in terms of the available energy to make those processes occur and, and, and to see them. But the other thing that's, that's really, well, okay, there are three things. The second thing that's important is we're going to triple our data set. So, the amount of data that we have um, is going to be increased dramatically, uh, in part because we, you know the um, the LHC has learned the Large Hadron Collider has learned how to better deliver that data to us. Um, so we'll we'll have a, a more data, which is also important. And then the third is a couple of new detectors have been installed. Um, Some of them, the most exciting ones from my perspective are the ones that let us actually select what we think is interesting. We have bunches of protons passing through each other uh, 40 million times a second, which is a lot. (laughs) And we can only keep about a thousand a second to 10,000 a second. So the algorithms that we run right away to choose are critical, as you can imagine. Um, one of the things we worry about is what if we're throwing away the data that is captured, you know, that that carries the answers to those mysteries. So we have some upgrades to our triggering system that helps us select interesting events. And that for me is some of the most exciting um, pieces of this because it expands what we have access
0: to and the ways that we can search. How do you kind of downregulate your nervous system so that the inspiration, the good ideas really can come to you? I
1: think um, I personally need time just to be staring out into space. Our house at um, where we live in Connecticut has the woods out and back, so I certainly enjoy walks. But even five minutes um, of walking from one place to another, Um, if I am lucky enough to be on public transportation, which I am a lot around here and sometimes, you know, going into New York or or out or different places, I'm a big stare out the window person, um, where I, I don't, um, I I try to keep my brain not busy. Um, that's been really important for me. Um, maybe that's, I don't know if that's, that's not a, That's not necessarily a a revolutionary routine, but just moments of not pushing my brain, um, letting my day kind of organize itself in my head and just having space for ideas. um, Because you can be too busy to be really creative. You can get in a rut um, and I just need time to stare out the window. And sometimes I, I try to tell my students that sometimes the very best that you can do on an activity you're trying to do is to stare out the window for a few minutes. Um, uh, maybe that's exactly what you need. So I try to just build that kind of time into my day.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's huge. And, and honestly, like after this all happens and, you know, it, it, how long does it run, uh, once it gets going? <laughs> this
1: is a marathon. This is not a sprint. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a 24 seven operation We'll be going actually just for a couple of months here through the end of November and then shut down for a couple of months when electricity is particularly expensive here in Europe, um, which also gives us time for some repairs. And then we get going again in the early spring and we'll run for a number of months. Uh, so we have a cycle of, you know, eight months on or nine months on, depending on the year, a month or or a couple months off. Um, of course, the, the running of the detector is not the running of our brains, because, like I said, we're we're already anal- we're still analyzing the data we have in hand. We're going to start analyzing data as it comes in, so um, there's a break from the operational perspective, but not from the work perspective, um, and and that's something to be aware of, particularly since the holidays in the U.S. and Europe don't always overlap. <laughs> you have to watch yourself right. a little bit and you don't always get those opportunities to, to take an actual break. Yeah.
0: Wow. So, I mean, we're almost, uh, to the end of time, but I'm just really curious. Like, what are you feeling? What is the, what is the energy around CERN right now? What are you personally feeling? Is it a lot of anticipation? Is it a lot of, I don't know what's going to happen. Like what's, what's the vibe there?
1: It's an interesting vibe. I, the, the schedule is so dynamic. There's, actually a lot of uncertainty about what's going to unfold at what pace. And it's the pace that's uncertain over the next couple of weeks. We don't know what problems we're going to be facing from the detector. There are some things that we know are going to be tricky, um, but we know we're going to have some surprises. I would say it's a combination of anticipation, um, definitely nervousness about the areas that I'm, I'm responsible for, um, you know, not, not, solely responsible for but working with. Uh, but I also have a lot of confidence that whatever is thrown at us, we're just gonna put one f- foot in front of the other and and make progress as quickly as we can. So I think there's a confidence that we're gonna extract the most out of this data that we can as soon as we can. Um, yeah. And it, it and and I think we're ready. It, it, you know, this has been a long time coming. <laughs> so the date has been yeah. looming large it's a little unusual in the fields to have a definite date so far in advance that, that we've been aiming for. Um, so that's, that's a factor too, that, okay, you know, it's, it's July, we're ready, Let let's go.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of like Christmas morning, I'm sure for everybody.
1: <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Um to kind of round everything out, what would you what would you say to the average woman listening to this? I wanted to have you on the show because I feel like, you know, as mothers especially, this is this is something so amazing for us, for the world, for our children. I mean, we're really headed into unknown frontiers. And that's why I really wanted to have you on the show. What would you say to the woman listening to this, who's wrapping her head around everything that's happening and and is going to come into our knowledge field? What would you say to her um, and just the future of the world?
1: Wow. Well, I would say, first of all, there's a sense there aren't a lot of women in the field of physics. I guess it's 20% about on Atlas. So one out of five um and there's definitely a sense of camaraderie among the women i would say i have gotten so much support throughout my career from women and I feel a responsibility in my career to mentor and and represent, be as competent, be as accomplished as I can. Also, so I I feel some sisterhood in my work that has really been critical for me throughout my career in in, in you know very real ways. So my first thing would be um, thank you, uh, thank you also because we're taxpayer funded. So uh, you know I, I would want to communicate that that we're good stewards of the resources that we have. We're working hard and and really grateful for that. Um, The last thing I would say is that the universe, from what I've learned in physics, it it really is so surprising. Um, Physics is the gift that just keeps giving in terms of uh, quantum mechanics, special relativity, Things don't behave the way we would expect just moving around and pushing objects around us. It's shocking when you learn about how things actually behave at the particle level. Um, And I really think that some of that really beautiful, surprising physics is accessible Uh, There are books out there. It's worth talking about. It's worth thinking about. Um, And and I hope that people have that sense of wonder from the universe and and how exciting it is to try to make forward progress and, and access more of it.
0: Yeah, well, we're definitely getting that from hearing you today. I think the interest will certainly be sparked, especially as we head into next week. Dr. Demers, where can our listener find out more about the work that you're doing and have done, which is also fascinating, all of your papers? And then how can we follow along for the fifth?
1: Ah, so there is a website for the 5th. There's actually going to be a broadcast that starts uh, 4 p.m. local time at CERN. So I can, there's a link available. The CERN um, uh, media website is going to be there. I actually am one of the few people who's going to be interviewed in the Atlas control room. So I'm still thinking about what I'm going to say and getting ready for that. Um, so people can follow along live for our first two hours of running which will be quite exciting um, but i think you know the cern website um, the yale physics website uh, there's a lot of resources out there we have this wonderful particle adventure website particleadventure.org i think where you can learn about what particle f- particle physics is what we're trying to do um, and some of the the physics mysteries that we're tackling Plus, so many books that people have written lay people for lay people about the Higgs boson discovery. Um, there's tons of ways to, to dig in. I don't know. Yeah, I'm happy to provide any links like that. But people could even just Google CERN and, and find all kinds of wonderful resources about Atlas and the work.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and guys, that will all be in the show notes, of course. Dr. Sarah Demers, thank you so much. I'm so excited for you and what's happening. Um, Thank you for taking time out of your very busy schedule to spend some time with us today.
1: Thank you. I really appreciate it.
0: You have been listening to the Motherhood Unstressed podcast. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast.